0: There was a guy who was called to be the new pastor of a church and for his first few Sundays he'd routinely say in his sermons, "Uh, well I'm not perfect, I have many inadequacies. One of his church members thanked him for his his honesty but the pastor asked, well didn't your previous pastors also admit to being inadequate? Oh yes, the church member said, but you're the first one we ever believed. (laughs) Well, I uh, suspect that we all have in common a feeling that if there's one thing that we could change in our life, it would be to feel adequate in facing the situations of life. You know, we all wrestle with some feelings of inadequacy and in facing life's challenges, and we just long to have a, a sense of being competent, being equal to the task. In fact, as Christians, we're never really feeling more inadequate maybe than when we're called on to minister to others. You know, I feel that inadequacy every time I get up here, <laughs> every time I lead a Bible study or a prayer meeting, uh, every time I meet with a grieving family or, or visit someone in the hospital. Um, I feel that inadequacy. I, I secretly long to be equal to every task, but sometimes I feel like a failure because, well, I'm not. And our feelings of inadequacy inadequacy sometimes cause us to to draw back, to miss the opportunities that God gives us to bless and help others. For instance, I've seen that response when people have been asked to serve as an elder in the church. Uh, Oh, I don't think I could do that. I'm not worthy. I'm too inadequate. And that's an honest admission. And I have to agree that none of us, elders, pastor, ministry team leaders is worthy or fully sufficient for the ministry entrusted to us by the Lord. None of us is fully adequate for the task given to us. Not one of us is sufficient for the challenges of ministry. But whether you know it or not, that weakness is one of the very qualities that qualifies you for ministry, as we will see. Now we're looking at a passage today in 2 Corinthians, where uh, the Apostle Paul has the exact same response when he talks about Christian ministry. He asks, who is equal to such a task? And he asks it in such a way that it's clear that he doesn't consider himself worthy or or adequate to the calling that's been given to him. Now that's not unusual in Scripture. In fact, all the, the greatest leaders in the Bible wrestled with this same issue. You remember in Exodus, chapters 3 and 4, Moses is at the burning bush and God says to him, go and bring my people out of Egypt. Moses says, who am I to do that? And he makes excuse after excuse. What if they won't listen to me? I've never been a good speaker. Lord, just send someone else. And what does the Lord say to him? I will be with you. And finally, Moses goes with all of his inadequacies still intact, and he leads God's people out of Egypt. Then in Judges chapter 6, you know, there's that young farmer, Gideon, and uh, he's scared out of his wits. <laughs> he's hiding out in a wine press as he's hiding from the invading Midianites. And the Lord comes to him and says to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Gideon says, "But I'm too weak, I'm just a a pipsqueak, I'm a nobody. But again, the Lord says, I will be with you. And so Gideon goes and he leads an amazing victory over the Midianites. Then Jeremiah chapter one, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah saying, I'm setting you apart and appointing you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah says, ah, sovereign Lord, I'm really just a little kid. I don't know how to speak. And the Lord says, I'm with you and I will rescue you. And Jeremiah, too, with all of his inadequacy still intact, becomes one of Israel's greatest prophets. And here in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul, too, recognizes his own weaknesses. He'd already admitted back in chapter 1 that the The troubles and the challenges of ministry were more than he could endure. But when he he asks here in verse 16b, and who is equal to such a task, he knows that the answer is that his competence comes from God. God is with me. And knowing and believing that is what makes all the difference. All the difference for Paul, all the difference for me, all the difference for you knowing that God is with us. And so here in verses 12 to 13, we see that Paul has left Ephesus where he ministered for some time and he's gone up the coast, western Turkey there today, to uh, the city of Troas. And Troas was near the ancient ruined Trojan city of Troy. And Paul went there hoping to meet up with his fellow worker Titus, who who was on his way back from Corinth. And Corinth is what Paul is really concerned about here, and he's hoping to hear some news from Titus about how things are going in the Corinthian church. But while he's waiting there in Troas, Paul finds that God has opened wide a door of ministry there for the good news of Jesus Christ. And people there were hungry for the gospel. He thought he was just passing through, but God had something for him. there, And so he had this great opportunity to preach and win people to Jesus there in Troas. Nevertheless, as Paul writes there, he's still anxious. Uh, he, he says he didn't have any peace of mind because he didn't find Titus there to bring him news about the Corinthians, these problems there that were so burdening him. He wasn't getting any text messages and news in those days was snail mail and it was slower than ours. It would take months. And so his sense of inadequacy and his anxiety about the church in Corinth here, at first, kept him from even laying hold of that great opportunity there at Troas. But thankfully he did, and he found to his surprise that God would use him powerfully there in that city. But eventually, uh, his deep concern for the Corinthians uh, got the better of him, and it kind of, it drives him on to Macedonia to try and find Titus there. Now we know that Paul was a strong leader, but he obviously wasn't afraid to openly share in his letter the state of his emotions. He wasn't ashamed to tell the Corinthians that he was anxious, a bit fearful. I mean, Earlier in this chapter, in verse four, he even told them that he was writing to them out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears. So he's not ashamed to relate to them just as he is in his weakness. And to have them understand that, that if he prevails, it's not by his power, but it's by God's. You know I too, in my own limited experience, know what it's like to be called to stand and preach the word of God in times filled, so filled with stress and, and worry that I didn't know if I could open my mouth. But Paul wasn't debilitated by his anxiety there, though he was deeply affected. And that is something that drove him to an even deeper dependence on God. So God was still leading him on, even as he felt very uh, inadequate to the task. It means that that you and I shouldn't interpret a lack of peace or a a sense of inadequacy as a sign that God is not leading us in our ministries. Sometimes we're led to some difficult places for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of God's people, where whether we're eldering a church or running a ministry or caretaking the church's finances, leading worship, or or trying to share the gospel with a friend or a family member. Our feelings of inadequacy can simply be a normal part of life in such situations. But what we need to do is let those inadequacies drive us to a deeper dependence on God. You see, Paul obviously came to terms with his own weakness there. He recognized it. In the next verses, verses 14 to 16, he suddenly interrupts his story about his travels and trying to meet up with Titus, and he he spontaneously launches into a a long digression here. Uh, It actually goes all the way into chapter 7. And what it is, it's, it's a sudden outpouring of thankfulness and triumphant faith on the part of Paul. That God's grace is adequate for each and every situation we find ourselves in. And no matter how threatening or daunting the situation may seem to be. And in verse 14, you know, Paul pictures there, he gives us a word picture of the, a Roman victory procession. Where after a battle, the victorious general would lead his soldiers and his captives in a victory parade through the streets while the crowds lined the streets and they cheered for them as they went by. And the air along the parade route would get filled with the sweet smell of incense burning. Everyone smells the aroma of it as the procession goes by. It's actually a picture here of God triumphantly leading us, his soldiers, as we release the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ and his victory to the world. You see, as Christians, we're, we're in the procession. We're following the victory of Jesus over sin and death. And we're the ones wafting the aroma to the people around us. Paul says in verse 15, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now, I don't know if you want to think of yourself as having an aroma, but... As Christians, we are to have a distinct spiritual fragrance about us. Back in the ancient world there, the the sense of smell was something that was actually highly valued. Um, They knew that smells can penetrate not just our our noses, but our memories, our imaginations, and in ways that our other senses can't. You yourself may have experienced that certain smells or Fragrances, could be perfume or fresh baked bread, or maybe something not as nice, that will evoke some powerful recollections that are associated with them, whether good or bad. You know, the first time I ever smelled holy incense was in Seville, Spain, during Holy Week in 1974. They call it Semana Santa. And large processions march through the streets there, celebrating Holy Week every year and they carry censers of, of burning incense. Now, I didn't grow up Catholic, but, so that smell was a new experience for me. And the smoke of it was from a smoldering mixture of frankincense and, and myrrh, and it just conveys a very distinct sense of holiness, mystery and awe. It's meant to evoke a sense of God's presence. Well, I've only smelled that fragrance uh, a few times since then. But each time, it just vividly takes me back to those memories of Holy Week in Seville, as if it happened yesterday. Now, for other people, I understand that maybe that smell evokes something less pleasant. But Paul says in verse 16a, to the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And it means that to some, the gospel is just a message about a defeated dead man, who they reject like when someone recoils at the odor of a decaying corpse. And these people are perishing because they're actually as spiritually dead as they believe Christ to be dead. To others who are being drawn by the love and power of the gospel and they're responding to it, the message of the, the risen Christ is the sweetest fragrance. Because it means victory and joy and hope and peace, even in the midst of trouble. These people are as alive as they believe Christ to be alive. So whether a believer or a non-believer, Paul says we influence them all. To one, the gospel is fragrant. It's like spiritual oxygen that breathes life into their, their souls. And to the other, the gospel is a stench. It's carbon monoxide that suffocates them. Now the gospel is absolutely good news. But depending on how it's received, it becomes a word either of salvation or of devastation. It's because it divides humanity, it divides humanity into two parts. It marks out two destinies those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And so, according to Paul, it's a very serious thing to be a Christian because we are potentially instruments of spiritual life and death to those around us. We have that kind of influence. No wonder Paul says in verse 16b, and who is equal to such a task? Who can possibly live up to that? Not Paul, not me, not you, not any of us. So why do I even dare to stand up here today? Why do our elders accept the task of overseeing the church? Why do many of you dare to take on the responsibilities of ministry? Hopefully, it's not because any of us think we can do it all in our own strength. In verse 17 and on into chapter 3, Paul is referring again to these false apostles in Corinth and there who were opposing him and who actually set themselves up in ministry for all the wrong reasons. He says in verse 17, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God." So the motives of these false apostles were insincere and self-centered, greedy even. And Paul implies in verse 1 of the next chapter, chapter 3, that instead of relying on God, they rely on themselves and what, what he calls letters of recommendation. What's that? Well, it's sort of like certificates to hang on their wall to give them credibility. But Paul says his credibility is seen somewhere else. It's seen in the changed hearts and lives of those Corinthian believers, people who had once been pagans and sinners, but who are now transformed by the gospel and brought from death to life. They are the proof of his ministry. That's his credentials not letters written in ink from men but letters from Christ written by God's spirit written where well on the tablets of human hearts as he says in verse 3 of chapter 3 so Paul's authentication for his ministry is not written in ink but it's the transformed lives that make up the Christian community there at Corinth and the other places where he ministered. And for you and me, authentic ministry is the spirit working through us. When we stand before God on the last day, uh, he's not gonna ask for certificates or letters of reference. He won't need to look up our names in some kind of membership book. Our credentials will be inscribed in the evidence of our own character and in the lives of others that we have touched. Our lives will be an open book to him that tells him all he needs to know. So Paul's words here should give us confidence because authentic ministry is God working in us. It's not us trying to prove anything or flex our muscles. He says in verse 4 of chapter 3 that "Such such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. As for myself, I've often wished I was smarter, or stronger, or had less weaknesses. But I need to learn to say what Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10b, when he says he delights in weaknesses, he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And why is that? Because as he says in Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Well, the real answer to Paul's question then, who is equal to such a task comes at the end of this passage in verses five and six, which, aside from the, the deity of Christ, may be one of the most important truths in Scripture. He says in verse five, "Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God." Now, I love this church and uh, I've always loved being your pastor. But I want you to know that if I didn't believe the truth of this verse, that my competence comes from God, I'd have resigned from this ministry long ago. The only thing that's enabled me to keep going, in spite of all my weaknesses and frustrations and sins and so on, is this truth that in Christ and in Him alone, I'm competent to be a minister of the gospel. I have to trust in that. And that out of my weakness, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ can be spread abroad. Well, Paul then says finally in verse 6: He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Sometimes it's like we try to live under the old covenant, you know, the old letter of the law, which which says, well, here's the standard to achieve, now go do your best to achieve it. But the new covenant, the covenant of God's grace in Christ, is just the opposite. It doesn't abolish the law, but it writes it in the only place where it will be effective, and that's in the heart. It says, just show up, present yourself to God, and He will work through you. See, the old covenant is is you trying to do your best on behalf of God, but the new covenant is God doing His best through you. And that's something we all need to learn. And that's my advice to you today. Authentic ministry is not a sense of overcoming all the obstacles and feeling triumphant as you go. Certainly we have some of those wonderful moments. But you know, real ministry experiences, uh, as the old hymn says, Many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. And yet, it's being confident that God is with you and able to do what you can't. And that the fragrance of Christ will be spread abroad through you and your ministry. That's what makes us equal to the task. And that's what will bring about transformation in our world.